You're listening to Exploring Boys Education, a monthly podcast produced by the International Boys Schools Coalition, in which we delve into contemporary topics impacting boys, their educators, and boys' educational institutions. I'm your host, Bruce Collins. In March this year, IBSC hosted an online program as part of our Belonging in Boys Schools series that focused on the intersection of race and gender in boys' schools. Our presenter, Lovelyn Nwadei, invited us into a brave space in which we explored racial and gender literacy and how these present in boys' school spaces. We were challenged again to strive for school spaces in which everyone belongs. In this episode of Exploring Boys' Education, we continue that important conversation by connecting with Ramon Javier, head of school of George Jackson Academy in New York City. With almost 20 years of leadership experience in New York City's top independent schools and educational access programs, Ramon has an impressive background. He has served as the Director of Equity and Inclusion at Trinity School, as well as the Director of Diversity and Equity at Packer Collegiate Institute. Holding an M.Ed. and M.A. from Columbia University, Ramon has also worked as a founding mental health counsellor at KIPP NYC College Prep and has been involved in prominent education access programs like the Teak Fellowship and Prep for Prep. As a native New Yorker and Prep for Prep alumnus, Ramon brings a deep understanding of middle school boys' potential, needs, and challenges they and their families face. Before we learn more from Ramon's valuable insights and expertise, however, I'm joined again by my colleague, Executive Director of IBSC, Tom Batty, for this episode's IBSC Newsreel. Thank you, Bruce. And whether post-Easter rhythms have you balancing intense examination mode with the planning of a summer holiday, or packing up the surfboards and waxing the skis, I send a very warm welcome to all dialing in to enjoy another episode of Exploring Boys' Education. The rhythms of the IBSC year have us currently wrapping up our professional development offering for the 2022-2023 year and embarking on the exciting phase of planning for 23-24, which will commence in August. Fixed in our sights, however, is being together at Westlake Boys High School in Auckland from the 5th to the 8th of July for our annual conference and exploring all that can be achieved as we dream beyond limits in the beautiful land of Aotearoa. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to register and join with the 500 plus boys school educators from around the world who will converge on the city of Sales in less than 60 days time. As Bruce mentioned at the start of this episode, our guest is Ramon Javier, head of George Jackson Academy in New York City. Back in November, I had the pleasure of visiting Ramon at George Jackson in East Village, New York City, and meeting boys and staff. We chatted about themes that whilst common to us all, always manifest slightly differently in our particular settings. The emotional development of boys and the place of technology, the importance of values and the place of ritual and community in their nurturing, the challenges of recruitment and retainment of staff, 
the involvement of parents in the journey of their sons. We were just discussing increasing regulation when the fire bell rang, one of 12 fire drills the school has to do each year. And we poured out onto the streets and into the park for roll check. It was a special morning that highlighted much that is special about IBSC. Ramon, thanks again to you and your boys and staff for their warm hospitality back in November. And thank you for joining us to share your insights on the intersection of race and gender at boys' schools. It's great to have you with us. Ramon, it's, it's wonderful to be speaking to you today. In fact, I've, I've just connected with Tom Batty, who was reflecting on his time he spent with you in November at George Jackson Academy. So really wonderful to be speaking to you about this important uh, topic today. Thank you. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be part of this. Thank you. Before we dive into some of these questions around the intersection of race and gender, and I know a number of our schools are wrestling through um, some of these questions, um, I really want to just spend some time speaking about your passion for the education of boys and also hear a little bit about George Jackson Academy. So why don't we start with the school? What what are the vision and values that underpin the work that you're doing in New York City at George Jackson Academy? Thank you. And again, it's a it's an honor to be able to, to talk about GJA and share our story. Um, our, our story starts with George Jackson himself. He was um, he attended a school called Monsignor Kelly when he was young, um, and that was a really formative experience for him. It's an all boys school, and that's where he met Brother Brian Carney, who was the founder of our school. And that experience was really formative for George. It stayed with him. He went to another school called Fordham Prep. That was another all-boys school. And then eventually went to Harvard and had this great career in telling the stories of, um, of Black folks. He's from Harlem, right? And George passed away suddenly of a stroke at the age of 42. Um, and one of the things that he wanted to do was, was have an all-boys school. It was such a powerful experience for him. And Brother Brian, that was something really important for him. And so that led to him starting George Jackson Academy in 2003. You know, and our, our mission is clear, right? We want to educate high-achieving boys, regardless of their economic means. We want to inspire courage, integrity, empathy, and leadership. Those are our core values. We're founded in the Lasallian tradition, education at the head, the heart, and the spirit. Really, we're trying to have a, a big impact. We're a small school, but we're trying to have a big impact and focusing on boys. And boys' education, it's personal for me. Um, I went to, I got to go to a magnet school at fourth grade, and that changed the trajectory of my life, a school called Mott Hall in Harlem. And that was kind of the first time where it was, it felt cool to be smart. Um, and that was, that was in contrast to a lot of the messages that I got um, being a black man, being a Latino man. Um, that was, that was in contrast. That was in opposition to the messages I was getting. And so that experience was so formative and powerful for me that when you look at, um, when you look at adolescence, and you look at that middle school age, that's such an important time for kids in general. And I think in New York City, um, for boys of color in particular, it's such an important time because boys start making choices at that time. And, and a lot of times, unfortunately, in some of the neighborhoods in which, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in, some of the choices, um, they aren't the best choices. They aren't the best options, you know, and that's a function of limited resources. It's not a function of character or culture or anything, anything ridiculous like that. It's really a function of access to resources and wanting to be able to be part of 
what helps shape a boy at that really pivotal time when they're making those choices of those choices of who am I going to be? What kind of person am I going to be in the world? What's going to be important to me to be part of that process for our boys is, is an honor. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. I can really sense. And I know from um, hearing Tom share about GJA, um, you're especially passionate about the education of boys. What are, what are the kind of things that, that drive that passion for educating boys? What you can be told as a boy, particularly a boy of color, it's, you know, you can be these kind of things, right? You can be an athlete, some sort of musician. Um, and those are beautiful things. <laughs> you know, there's no knock on those things. I would love to be the starting shortstop for the New York Mets, but that wasn't in the cards for me. Um, and so you're told that, you know, those are kind of the only options. Um, and But the idea of, like, I can love school. Um, I can love to read. Um, I can love math and science. You know, that's, that wasn't a message that I was getting, and I feel like it's not necessarily a message that is consistently being told to boys at that age. A lot of the messages I got were um, that I had to be a certain way, and it, and it didn't involve education. Um, and so I think boys' education, especially I think at this time in, in, in the United States, in the history of our country, is so pivotal um, you've seen a lot of growth in girls' education. You've seen a lot of progress for women, Black women in particular, um, just the ways in which affirmative action have really benefited women, um, white women in particular. Um, and, and so really thinking about, okay, well, our boys, you know, how are we supporting our boys? And, and the benefits of that work on behalf of women has been incredibly important, right? And it's no knock on that, um, but it also kind of highlights the need to, to take care of our boys and education being one of the things that this country professes to be an equalizer. Um, I think that's incredibly important for us to be intentional about how we're addressing the education of boys, especially, I think, at this age. My degree is in counseling psychology from Teachers College, Columbia University. And one of the things that I've, as I was going through that program, that really require a lot of self-reflection. One of the things that I remembered realizing was I never took time to understand my emotions. Right. I never really learned how to articulate what my experience was from an emotional level. And when I thought about how that impacted my experiences in high school in particular, um, especially because I went to a predominantly white high school, um, an independent school in, in Westchester County, and the emotional piece of my development so impacted my educational outcomes. Although I went to a great college, I went to Williams College and I had a great education. I wonder if I had a better understanding of my emotional experience how that might have had an even more positive impact on my educational experience. And so I think creating a space where our boys can feel comfortable talking about their emotional experience, I think there's a, a real connection to the educational outcomes. Those are such important points. And even as you've introduced the school and some of your own passion for boys' education and your own experience, this theme of the intersection of race and gender seems to come through strongly. As you think about the educational experience of boys at George Jackson Academy, um, how does that intersection of race and gender play a role in their educational journey? You know, GJ is it's not intentionally a school designed to be for all boys of, for boys of color, but we are. We're one hundred percent boys of color. It's not exclusive, right, in that regard, but we are. And so that presents us with a really kind of unique opportunity for our boys. It's almost as if our school is a large affinity space in that regard around race and gender. And, and we have boys of, of a variety of ethnic backgrounds and racial identities, but 
the fact that we're able to host that space where everyone can identify as a person of color, that's huge for us. Right. And it, um, I think what it does, because our boys go off to top day and boarding schools in the tri-state area, they can go to schools in Tennessee and California, um, where they are predominantly white institutions, um, the ability to have three years, right, with grades six, seven, and eight, where you're getting, you're being affirmed, your racial identity, your ethnic identity, it's being affirmed, you're seeing that consistently amongst your classmates and some of your faculty, um, to have that opportunity to really feel strong and solidified in that sense, I think it's it's really important as our boys go out to other spaces, which are like ours. Ours, it really is a unique um, educational experience for independent schools in New York City. If I think about the the, the story of the intersection of gender and race, um, Dr. Mark, Mark Lamont Hill, he has this great um, essay in this book, um, You Are Your Best Self. Um, and it's edited by Tarana Burke and, and Renee Brown, right? And it's really looking at vulnerability from the perspective of Black folks. Right. And Dr. Mark Lamont Hill has this amazing essay in there where he talks about being a black boy who loves to read and loves school and that being the opposite of the message that he was receiving about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a black man at, at, at that time growing up in Philly. And that was such a powerful essay for me to read. I've shared it with a few of our boys um, because the perception, at least the messages that I was getting and I think that our boys are getting is that there's only one way to be a man of color. There's only one way to be a Latino man, be a black man, Asian man. Um, and it doesn't, in particular for black and Latino boys, and it doesn't necessarily speak to the educational experience. The other part is the idea of, um, the idea of adultification that can so often happen for black and Latino boys in particular. This idea that you're A, expected to be a man or act like a man when you're a child. The fact that sometimes society will treat you as if you're older than you actually are. And so the experience of childhood is shortened or stripped, you know, and so you have, you have, while you are a child, you're not necessarily allowed to be a child. And I think that's one of the things that we, we really try to do at GGA is we try to let the boys be boys and not in that antiquated notion of let the boys be boys, but in the idea of let them be children, you know? And so when we talk to them, when they have, you know, an issue with, an, with a classmate or there's kind of a, a behavioral issue when we're redirecting them, it's constantly with the idea of their boys. They are kids and we're gonna we're gonna address them in that way. How have you then approached these conversations around promoting diversity, inclusion, and equity among students, particularly in these conversations about race and gender and the intersection of the two? You know, our, our boys will get a, a historical and systemic analysis in their humanities classes, right? So they'll read books like Stamped. Um, and they'll, they'll get a sense and an understanding and a foundation of history in the United States, right? And how the history of this country impacts our current day circumstances, right? So they'll have, they'll get that analysis and they'll be able to kind of interrogate those ideas and those concepts from a systemic perspective and a historical context, right? Um, I think in addition to that, um, you know, the conversations that we have with them in the hallway or we have something called community meeting and that's every Thursday morning. Um, and I get to work with a group of uh, our community meeting council. It's um, it's three or four of our students, to just depending on the week, you know, and, and they are students and I work with them, but I'm really trying to push them to lead it, to lead these meetings. And it's based on our core values of courage, integrity, empathy, and leadership, right? Really kind of every meeting is, is centered around one of those core values. 
Um, and it's trying to come, it's trying to operationalize those concepts, but within the, from the perspective of our boys, right? So for example, today, you know, I had to lead a session today on, um, on bias, right? And, and so I shared a story of an experience that I had where I exhibited bias against somebody else and then used that story to kind of model for them the idea that we all have these things. We all have a bias, right? Irrespective of our circumstances. Um, but then really kind of gave them an analysis for, what does bias mean? Where does it come from? Um, how it can impact relationships and outcomes and how do we address it, right? The, the idea that it's a skill that we have to develop. Um, and so, you know, the idea is they're getting some of, they're getting some of the analysis in the classroom and then we're trying to operationalize what that means in connection to our core values um, so that they're living it, right? So it's not just words. It's, it's, it's something that you're actually living on a daily basis. So do you think the unique environments of a boys' school the fact that you're working with boys only gives you an opportunity to, in a particularly powerful and unique way, address these issues that you've been talking about, issues like bias, um, some of the challenges that they might face because of, of, of the world around them, the systemic issues you were, you were speaking about, and, and possibly also their gender. Um, that does the fact that you have boys together and only boys together provide an opportunity to have those great conversations more easily. It's an experience that I, I wish every every man can have at least a few years in an all boys environment, um, because I think one of the benefits of it, I think we're taught um, the, the the gender role, the gender concept of a man. There's a level of competitiveness inherent to it, and I think what we're able to do in our school by really talking about brotherhood and the boys talking about brotherhood is really kind of reframe the need to be competitive. So you're not necessarily competing with your brothers, but you're trying to figure out how can you maximize your talents? How can you do the best that you can do? And so that's different from competing. I need to get a better grade than you, right? That's, can I get the best grade I can get? And that's a real, I think that's a subtle, but a really important shift and being in a boys environment an all boys environment and be able to kind of, help the boys avoid getting trapped in that need to be competitive with others as opposed to trying to push yourself. I think that's huge because I think what that can do from a long-term perspective is really allow the boys to develop lifelong friendships where they can understand, okay, if I'm not competing with my brother, I can be vulnerable with him. I can use him as a resource. I can ask for help. Right. And, and we see that in our alums. We see the relationships that our alums carry on after they leave GJA, when they go to high school and college and, and beyond college in the way that they're still connected. And they talk about brotherhood. Right. And they talk about brotherhood. And I think inherent to brotherhood is I'm not competing with you. I want you to do your best, but I also want to do my best. But I'm not in competition with you in particular. I'm kind of in competition with myself. And I think that's really different. And I think that's a function of being in an all boys environment that's not necessarily that's trying to kind of strip away this idea of being competitive with each other and really trying to foster a sense of brotherhood. And I think alongside that, you mentioned vulnerability is the opportunity for boys to be vulnerable together. You know, that all boys environment provides an amazing foundation for those kind of conversations to happen in a real way. Yeah. And in that book in particular, you are your best thing. Um, it's, I think it's the impact of Toronto Burke. Who really, who really, she's ed edits the book with, with Brene Brown. I really want to highlight her, um, where she really, it's, it's 20 writers, 20 black, 
um, activist writers, and they all write their own story about their relationship with vulnerability, but from the perspective of being a Black person, in particular in this country. And I think that's the piece that's so powerful about that particular book that was so powerful for me, especially Dr. Lamont Hill's essay, because it is, it's not just looking at vulnerability, because the risk, because here's the thing, Bruce, I think the risk of being vulnerable as a person of color, it feels greater. It feels that, that it feels like riskier. Like if I show any kind of sign of weakness as a, as a man in general, we're taught you can't be weak, right? Full stop. Irrespective of ethnicity, country of origin, you can't be weak, right? And then if you couple that, um, that message of avoiding weakness and vulnerability with an ethnic and racial dynamic in this country, in the United States in particular, that gets exacerbated. Like it's exponential the impact of it, of the, the desire to never be vulnerable. And what they do in that book and just kind of, I think one of the things that we try to do at GJA is say, you know, vulnerability is, takes courage to be vulnerable. It really takes courage because at the, at the crux of vulnerability is honesty with yourself, right? And so really wanting our boys to believe that they can be honest with, their self, with themselves and then in turn be honest with each other. And that's grounded in that idea of vulnerability and kind of uh, brotherhood and kind of taking away that sense of competitiveness. You must face some real challenges Ramon, as you're addressing the intersection of race and gender in in a boys' school. And I think particularly because of the context you've painted and the context into which your boys will be stepping. Um, what are some of those challenges and how are you helping boys to overcome those challenges? When they come in the building, we can control what messages we give them. We, can, I mean, we can't be with them every single second in our school building, even though it's not a big building. Um, but we have a, a greater control of what messages we're giving them and how we're going to, um, what kind of behaviors we're going to model. Once they leave the building, then they're interacting with society, right? Then they're acting, interacting with New York City and the inhabitants of New York City and everything that comes with that. And, and that is, that's something that I, that I worry about, <laughs> you know, all the time. I worry about, okay, so they've left, you know, 3.15 and 4.30, those are our two, um, End of days, 315 is regular end of day. Some kids stay far after school and they leave at 430. Those two times, those are when I'm like, okay, I hope they're gonna be okay. You know, because then I don't know how they're gonna how the world is gonna interact with them. And therefore that internal story that they have, that sense of self is so important. And so I worry about that, the ways in which society and other folks are gonna interact with our boys, right? That's that's something that's huge. I also wonder too, um, you know, I think we're still we're all still really grappling with the impact of COVID. Like, I, like really, and like, you know, obviously we saw the immediate impact of it, uh, first responders, you know, the, the, the huge death toll, we saw all those things. And then, but then there's that kind of long-term really shaking up of society. Um, I think the really, um, the, the mental health impact of it, I think we're still understanding that. I also think there was this um, there was this real strong this real sense of urgency in this country after George Floyd was murdered, right? Huge. I mean, the outpouring, the statements, the donations—it was huge. Um, and then you've seen kind of a flip in a lot of ways in our country. Um, kind of wait, that was too much. We need to overcorrect. It was too much. And so, you know, this idea of um, of racial equity in this country. Um, it was there was this kind of big push. <laughs> there was a big sense of urgency, and that feels like it's since dissipated. 
And so I wonder from a long-term perspective what that's going to mean for our boys. But really the biggest thing I worry about is the ways in which society and other individuals are going to interact with our boys and have we done enough um, to support them and, and be in partnership with their families um, to help them and to help ensure that they have that strong internal sense of self so that they, they're ready. Um, that's, I mean, that's the, that, that seems big. I know that seems big, but that really is the thing that I worry about the most. We've spoken a lot about um, this idea of vulnerability and opening up. Um, and I think particularly for, for your boys in that middle school age and stepping into, into high schools beyond um, GJA, how, how do you encourage your boys to, or empower your boys, maybe would be a better way of saying it, to engage in open conversations about race and gender? You know, it's it's funny because um, one of the things I've been trying to kind of move away from is this idea of empowering, right? Like it, it's almost as if I'm granting them power and I don't need to grant them power, right? If we're thinking from a Frarian perspective of being in solidarity, they are inherently powerful, right? And so really one trying to start the conversation from that from that vantage point, right? Like you are, you inherently have agency. Let's cultivate and, and nurture your sense of agency. I think the other part too is that there can be an assumption that because you're a person of color, you're someone, you're somehow an expert at racial identity or gender development. And I mean, you're talking about, you know, work of like Robert Carter, right? <laughs> like you're talking about tons of work um, on racial identity development models from, you know, the seventies and the eighties, there's tons of scholarship on this. Right. And so it's just also kind of from the starting point of, just because you are a person of expert uh, of color, you're not an expert on racial identity development or systems, right? Just because you um, identify as a man, that you're an expert on gender identity or the ways in which these systems, right? So I say that because you know we we try to educate our boys on okay, well this is this is what race is. Race really is phenotype, right? It's skin color, facial features, and hair textures. That's what race as a concept is. That's it. Now, race within the context of a, of a system of a system of oppression or Concepts of racism or white supremacy, that's different. But understanding, you know, just from a basic level of what is the difference between Latino, Latine, Latinx, Latina, and Hispanic, right? Like understanding that we have to educate our boys also and not starting from the assumption that they're experts on these things. They're experts on their experience, but not necessarily on these concepts. So that's something that, you know, I've tried to introduce um, this year too, in terms of educating the boys on, on those concepts and working with our team, right? So it's not, it's never just a my effort. It's always a collective effort. Um, so having that experience, right? Um, and also kind of really making clear to them that in a lot of ways, our school is unique. It's an affinity space, right? Like it's it's a it's a, it's a 100% boys of color. And that's really unique in an independent school setting, right? That's different for a public school or charter school setting. But for independent schools in New York City, that's really different where you don't have that. You know, De La Salle is another school where the majority of their students are, are students of color. You know, there are very few schools like that at all, um, independent schools in New York. And so really kind of talking to them about the unique nature of our school and what that can mean for them when they go forward. So a couple of things from for us, it's really kind of the starting point of understanding what agency is, understanding that they're not experts, right, that they have to be educated as well. And then in educating them as well, then asking them to think about, okay, what's your racial autobiography? Like, what's your relationship to race? And having them interrogate that for themselves, because I think that's a skill that a lot of people don't develop. I do wonder, just as we close this conversation, in terms of understanding the impact that curriculum has on boys' concepts of themselves or understanding of themselves, how are you thinking about 
unpacking the potential racial and gender biases within the curriculum and ensuring also that faculty and staff are, are trained and are aware um, of these things and are able to address them. I did this thing, a racial autobiography exercise um, with our faculty and staff, uh, with, our, with our teaching staff in particular. And I, Bruce, one of the things that was really interesting to me was I've done that exercise, I don't know, maybe for the last 15 years, and I found it in a book, but we are so brave, a Black Women's Studies book. I found it's called um, Consciousness Raising. Um, that's, where I, that's where I learned it. I want to make sure I give credit. Um, and what was interesting to me was that a lot of our younger teachers had done a lot of that work. Like they had a, that, that was part of what they were doing at the college level and even at the graduate school level as they were coming in. And that feels different to me from 15 years ago, let's say, from you know incoming teachers. So it's, it's indicative of the starting point, I think, for more teachers where they're coming in at a different starting point as it relates to their own individual experience with racial identity, which then informs how they approach these concepts in the classroom. So I think that's a big piece, right? I think that's a really kind of important starting point. Um, so I think our, our teachers are, are looking at how do I understand that about myself? And then how does that impact the relationship that I have with my students? Because it's not lost upon any of us that everyone in the classroom is a kid of color. And so to try to pretend as if that's not a factor, that would be irresponsible. None of our teachers do that. So I think that's an important point, especially with our, with our white teachers, where they're conscious of that. And that's part of when they're thinking about what they're picking to read or how they're going to talk about it. Um, I think just the fact that they're at that starting point that's huge and that opens up a lot more possibilities to be honest about how we're going to approach this and teach this. I'm mindful of the fact that folk listening to this podcast, not all of them will be teaching in a context like yours with only students of color, but I know that many of our schools are wrestling through how to be more equitable um, spaces for all boys. Um, I wonder what, what are some of the lessons you think are important for, for folk who are in other contexts but have boys of color in their schools? Well, what are some of the lessons they could take away from the conversation we've been having today? I think everyone has to have has to understand their relationship with the dominant identifiers in their country and their cult in their context, right? In the United States, race and gender, you know, though and religion, but race and gender. So I think understanding your relationship with those aspects of identity from interpersonal and internalized um, and a systemic perspective is crucial um, because the idea that um, that you can walk into the room and that you don't bring yourself into the space, I think is absurd. I think every room you walk into, you bring all of yourself in, in there, into that space. Then it's a question of how much of that do you access on a conscious or unconscious level and then how that impacts the ways in which you interact with other individuals. So if you haven't done the work to interrogate your own racial identity from those different levels that internalize into personal and systemic level, then I think you're, you're eventually doing a disservice to your students, no matter what you're, irrespective of your intentions. You can be the, the best of intention person, but if you're not thinking about these things, and it could be a different identifier in a different country, right? It could be something different. I don't know, but I'm from the United States. If you're not doing that work on yourself, it's you're opening yourself up for the possibility and the likelihood that you could do some damage to a student in your classroom and therefore negatively impact the educational outcomes for that student or even their understanding of themselves as a student or their relationship to school. So you have to start with that. And it can be painful. It can be challenging for some people. But I think the cost to our students is not worth it. Your, your, your temporary pain or discomfort is not 
worth the damage it could do to a student and their potential as a student or their relationship with school. So, I mean, for me, that's that's what I've seen be have the biggest impact um, is interrogating your relationship with these concepts. Ramon, I think that's a great way to wrap up and you've left us with a challenge and I think you've left us with lots to think about. I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and with your insights. Um, it really has been wonderful to to connect with you, to speak about GJA, the good work that you're doing, um, and the good work that, that you and your faculty are doing in the lives of middle school boys in, in New York City. So thank you for being with us and sharing um, with us today. Bruce, I, I want to thank you for including me, and I, and I want to, I, I don't think I did this enough, I really want to make sure that I highlight um, my faculty and staff. Um, they are phenomenal. I just started in July, so the school has been functioning and running well before I got here. Um, so it's a testament to folk, to our founder, Brother Brian, former principal, uh, heads of school like David Arnold, um, Andre DelVal, um, Antoine Allen, um, Nicole McCabe, longtime teachers like Iman Aswad, placement folks um, like Colleen Powers and Dad advancement folks like Carrie Tatum, and then our board, too. Our board is phenomenal. Um, our board chair, Steve Lipman, is, is phenomenal. And so I want to make sure that the, the folks that have been doing this work well before me, that they get the credit and that they are acknowledged as well for their work. So thank you for giving us an opportunity to do that. In reflecting upon this conversation, it's clear to me that creating a more equitable educational experience for all boys is a complex ongoing process that requires dedication, adaptability and a commitment to understanding the unique intersections of race and gender. We are grateful, Ramon, for your insights and trust that those of you listening leave this episode feeling inspired, informed and better equipped to engage in the important work of promoting inclusivity and equity in teaching boys. Until next time, keep on championing boys' education.